For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. gentlemen boys and girls dogs and cats friends and enemies welcome to epic realms i am your host nick today my guest is an award-winning rpg designer his list of credits include star wars starfinder pathfinder DD, wheel of time everquest rpg gamma world the list goes on and on we probably won't cover them all but we'll cover what we can get Oh, and Casey, Steve, is it Stevens or Stephens? I'm assuming it's Stevens. Stevens. It is, I in fact, Stevens. Just making sure, because you never know. It's How true. are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for asking. Now, you've been role-playing for a very long time, uh, which is coming from me. Like, I look young, but I'm, I'm not as young as I look. And I've been role-playing for almost as long. Well, probably not actually almost as long. You, you next you, next year it'll be forty years. Holy cow, forty years. Well, I'm I'm over half that at least. So I started not as young as you. You started when you were nine? Is that right? Eleven. Yeah. Eleven. No, was, Holy cow. What was your introduction there? How did you get into uh, it? So uh my parents wanted to go to Europe when I was eleven years old, and they decided that they did not want to haul their children along in Europe, which at the time I was very salty about. And as an adult, I totally get it. Uh, so they dropped us off with uh, my Uncle Lucian and uh, Aunt Rosemary and our cousins for most of the summer. Uh, and we did things like go to the 1982 World's Fair in Knoxville, because that's where my, my cousins lived. But my Uncle Lucian had a real geek uh, recreational area. So I was doing uh, on an Apple, I was flying uh, flight simulators, and he had uh, a Go set, and I was playing all sorts of games with my cousins. But he also had a first edition AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. And I had not been exposed to role-playing games at all at that point. And so it looked cool. I pulled it down. He had put it with all of the Pulp Adventure books and Conan and, and Fawford and the Grey Mouser and all of them. And I realized that this was some sort of game rather than a, a great big hardback book. And he told me, hey, if you can figure out how to play that, I'll play with you. We just haven't figured out how to play it. Because, of course, he only had the DMG. We didn't have a player's handbook. Oh. But the idea that I could actually take on the role, you know, play the role of some sort of fantasy adventurer, the Elric of Melbourne, whatever, um, was super exciting to me. So I looked through, and there was a list of short stat blocks for monsters in the first edition DMG. And from that, I figured out what numbers player characters needed in order to be able to play. So I wrote rules for making player characters based off the rules for monsters. Now, 
that does mean I was literally doing homebrew RPG game design before I actually played a tabletop role-playing game. Uh, the rules, the rules were awful, but they were just barely functional. So uh, my sister and I made characters. Uh, I think that is the last time she played a tabletop role-playing game. My uncle ran a few games uh, and I was very, very, very hooked, but uh, summer ended. I wasn't with my uncle and my cousins anymore. Uh, I did not live in a neighborhood with, with anyone else my age or even close to my age. So I did not have anyone to play with and things might well have just dried up and, and turned to dust there. If my mother had not been who I refer to as the Empress of the Geeks, and she was part of the uh, Norman, Oklahoma Science Fiction Association or NOSFA. And so she went to them and she said, hey, my son's really excited about these role-playing things, but there are no role players nearby. What can I do? And one of them happened to know about Tunnels and Trolls, which had a whole bunch of solo dungeons. Okay. And they said, you can get the Tunnels and Trolls set. And they've got one person solo modules that were like choose your own adventure things, except that you actually use dice and the rules to, to get through them. So for Christmas that same year, uh, I got the box set and literally every solo adventure she could find because my, my grandparents didn't buy gifts for me directly. They would give her money and say, we, we don't know what the children want, whatever they want. Um, so I had this big stack of these solo adventures and got really hooked on it and was again, doing game design and, and the box set for Tunnels and Trolls had some rules on making your own dungeons. So I did that. Uh, and the fact that I was carrying this stuff around meant that when I got to my next school uh, a little while later, uh, those became my geek flag that people would nice. see, oh, he's carrying a Tunnels and Trolls book or a first edition AD&D book, or I had Car Wars at that point, Starfleet Battles. Uh, and so a lot of people would, you know, we're still talking about being like 12, 13 years old. Uh, other 12 and 13 year olds at school would say, oh, I've seen that. I'm interested in it. Is that something that you want to play at lunch? And that is sort of how everything spiraled out from there. My mother also for many years ran a D&D game for myself and several other friends. She literally booked a room at the uh, rec center and put out an ad in the paper and got a bunch of other boys my age. And she discovered that if you are the dungeon master or dungeon mistress in her case, uh, 12, 13, 14 year old boys will hang on your every word. Um, so once a week on Sunday, she would run a game for two or three hours and she would end every game with something like, okay, you have reached the giant uh, doors to the ancient Dwarven kingdom. And the only way to be able to open them is to be able to recite the names of all the Dwarven kings. I don't want to have to write up all the Dwarven kings. So next week, one of you boys will have to know the names of all the presidents of the United States in order. And we will use that instead. Um, or she would say, hey, you're trying to forge an alliance uh, with these lizard folk in the swamp. You're going to have to be able to explain democracy to them. So I want a, a 300 word paper on the concept of democracy. Nice. So she would end every session with homework, but we did not see it as homework. We saw right. it as role playing challenges. Right. So we're learning the color wheel and basic algebra and and sociology and economics. I mean, she was, you know, she's an adult. She had a, a good she, she's not natively a, a gamer or a role player. Um, she, she likes reading the books. She understood the, the, the genre. Uh, the only reason she was doing this was because it was a, a quick way to get a whole bunch of, and, and the parents of my friends just loved that they could drop someone off with someone who's, and she, my mother had a teaching degree and a, a psychology degree, which I think shows in the fact that she right. tricked us into right. learning things. <laughs> um, and eventually we grew to a point where we were starting to run stuff for each other and we had other friends and she just stopped running it. But that, that was my sort of initial arc that really led me to be very deeply involved in homebrew stuff, which is how my 
writing career, my, my game design career started was just with homebrew material. Nice. You were talking about, you know, playing at lunch or playing with friends. Did, did role-playing ever get in the way of school for you? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Uh, I, I would spend much more time role-playing and playing war games uh, than I did doing my homework. Uh, literally my last two semesters of high school, uh, I had to sit down and say, okay, if I actually want to graduate, I need this many credits. I have this many hours. Okay. I have to pass these classes. And, and I was, I was min-maxing high school, which again was, was a result of my experience up to that point. Um, I have a lot of friends who were playing with me, but you know, I had one group that would play with me on a Friday and one group on a Saturday and one group with a Sunday. So I was playing three times as much as they were. And they went on to like have college degrees and useful skills. And I went on to be a game designer because that is what I spent my entire educational period doing. Uh, I do not have the necessary educational background to do anything else. So one one could say that I fell into this as the only thing I had prepared myself for. Were you good at anything in school? Or were you like, like flatten the line across everything? You're like, you know, I'm going to do what I can do. And that's it. So uh, like I had you look this and go, really... English is I'm good at English and that's it. Or I'm good at math. Cause you know, role playing kind of covers all the aspects. I, I was in fact good at English and good at math. Um, I was bad at homework. So there were a lot of classes that I learned some useful stuff and, and absorbed it and can still spit it out where I got a D or an F because I would never turn in the work. I, I hated having anyone tell me what to do or when I had to have it done by, which means a career with a whole bunch of freelance deadlines was a terrible idea, but here we are. Um, yeah, I, I was not a good student. I would not recommend people take my path of, of playing games more than, but you know, with, I was playing a lot of champions. I was playing a lot of car wars. Car wars has a lot of, you know, this thing has this much space and this much weight and, and this much money. And you had to control all three of those variables to make an effective vehicle. So I was writing up algebraic formulas to try and figure out, okay, what is my best average damage per dollar per space per pound so that I would know, well, if I've got a bigger vehicle, but less money, these are my best choices. If I've got a smaller vehicle, but more money, these are my best choices. Um, and I mean, I, I could write a book called Everything I Needed to Know uh, I Learned from Role-Playing Games and War Games. The problem is that that's everything I needed to know to become a professional game designer, not everything I need to know about life in general. Right, right. Um, I, I don't have regrets in that regard, uh, but I, I was a bad student. I didn't, I mean, I took a... a semester of college uh and again did not want to do homework so that was time away from playing my games that's playing these games tabletop games with friends was the glue of my my social life i've got friends that i've been gaming with for more than 35 years that i met this way i met my wife through gaming uh nearly every professional job I've had has been through gaming, the exception being a, a few things that I did, like I was the, the manager of a parking garage at the University of Oklahoma, because the University of Oklahoma is in my own town, so yeah. it is relative, they are a big employer, if you keep applying, you can get a job there, even if you don't have a lot of skills. Right. Um, but it, it and, and I did not I did not apply to be a professional role player on my own. That was my wife who kept looking at me taking these little odd jobs that I hated uh, and then see that I had these notebooks with 400 pages of homebrew material and say, hey, we all love your stuff. You love your stuff. Maybe someone would pay you for your stuff right. and encouraged me to take the step 
to actually start applying initially at magazines because this was the, the 1980s, 1990s. Yeah, uh, she also and Dungeon Magazine yeah. and stuff like that. Dungeon, Dragon, Shadis, uh, D8, Pyramid. Uh, and there, there was there was one article that I kept submitting it. I kept getting accepted. I'd be told what issue of a magazine it would come out in. And then that would be the issue where the, the magazine went bankrupt and the article never came out. Um, wow. Eventually, Pyramid broke that streak and they actually successfully published it. And that was kind yeah. of where you got your foot in the door, basically, was yeah. that, that that first publishing. What was your first game that you game system you worked on? Uh, the first games. So the first thing I got paid for right, was right. Champions. Okay. And that was being paid uh, one twentieth of one cent per word for 100,000 words. And the publisher paid me and went bankrupt. Uh, and it never saw publication. Oh, so, man. Uh, I, I made my my tiny amount of money on this huge project, which was the first thing that I was ever actually paid for, and it never got published. And under the terms of the contract, I got paid, so those words aren't mine anymore. And I You're strongly right, right, right. I strongly suspect no one has a copy anymore. Right? The, there's no sign that, that company survived. Uh, it was uh, uh, a World War II champions super agent setting that was being published with a license from Champions, so it wasn't from Hero. Right. It's almost the a, stuff, almost to the point where you could almost, you know, if they went bankrupt, you could almost buy that intellectual property back. You want to I mean, I probably bankrupt. could, but it was the very first thing I wrote. Right. I don't know right. that it's worth paying right. for, to be honest. <laughs> um, the first stuff I got that was actually published was technically for uh, second edition AD&D, but they were a series of articles on uh, name generators for various species for oh, okay. D&D. So I had a, uh, I submitted to Dragon Magazine a Dwarven name generator where I had broken all the Dwarven names and, and added a whole bunch of Nordic stuff. Uh, so if you did uh, Grim and Dahl, uh, your name would be Grimdol and it would mean, you know, uh, death dealer. And so you could figure out what all these things meant. And I submitted that and got a very polite response back from Dave Gross, uh, who nurtured me through the stage in my career of magazine submitting where he said hey this is a great idea for an article i love it you weren't paying attention we literally just published our dwarf issue and we only do that once a year but in three months our elf issue comes up do you think you could write an elven name generator and i was like senpai noticed me um so i i absolutely wrote an elven name generator and it took me 30 days to write a 1000 word article wow uh if i can't get 1,500 to 2,000 words done a day now, then I am I am falling behind on what you I feel, need to do. to feel bad. <laughs> well, I can't pay the bills, right? It, the, the, the amount that you get for things, even self-published things, tends to be measured in fractions of a dollar per word. So uh, it's it's great to have things like the blog and, and uh, other freelance companies and third-party publishers and stuff who do my stuff. But if you can't produce a certain amount of stuff, you just can't make it a full-time job. Right. I want to get to the elephant that's in the room that I know a lot of people are here for, and that's Star Wars. You worked on some Star Wars projects. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there were two, right? Wizards of the Coast did two different Star Wars. They did Star Wars and then Star Wars Saga. Three different versions. There was Star Wars. There was the Star Wars Revised Core Rulebook, right. or RCR. Then there was Saga Edition. Okay. What was the difference between the three of them like because you worked on all three of them right yeah what was yeah. the difference uh, when you're when you're looking at one and then the other one like i'm a big fan of saga saga's always been my favorite of the three uh just it just seemed so well balanced and you could do damn near anything you wanted thank you in the universe 
what was the big, you know, for people that are listening that don't know, what were the big differences between them? So um, the first Star Wars role-playing game, the D20 Star Wars role-playing game, which I, I was hired by Wizards of the Coast to be on staff to help support that game. Uh, and that's where I wrote my first bigger than magazine article solo project. So I wrote uh, Starships of the Galaxy, the old black and white one uh, for that original book. Um, it was pretty much the second D20 game to get designed after third edition d d uh, at Wizards of the Coast. And there were other things going on at the same time. Um, they were working on uh, the Call of Cthulhu D20. Uh, and there were some some other projects going forward that that never saw the light of day. But that meant that that first book was very much, okay, we've seen how you use the D20 system for fantasy, for D&D. We are going to try and convert those concepts to sci-fi. And that means that we do things like, well, we've got to have some sort of starship rules. Um, you, you can maybe skip naval combat rules for a fantasy game. You can't skip starship combat rules for a Star Wars game. It's it's integral to the setting. Uh, we need uh, rules for the Force as opposed for magic. We need to try and figure out a way to have Jedi and other Force users be balanced per level uh, against soldiers and, and envoys and nobles and such. So that first one was, I'm not saying it was bad, but it was it did not have the advantage of feedback of what worked and did not work well in 3.0 D&D. About the time 3.5 came out, uh, they did their revised core rulebook for the same reason. There were a fair number of things that had turned out not to work as well as you might have hoped. Uh, this is despite extensive playtesting. Oh, and you've got a Star Wars role-playing game. You can playtest it all you want, but the split second it goes out to the general public, you've got thousands and thousands of more eyes looking at it and playing right. it and finding weird right. corner cases. So the revised core rulebook, like 3.5, was a attempt to update the parts of the original book that did not work well. And it created a game that wasn't quite compatible, but was very, very similar. Uh, Star Wars Saga Edition was a different matter entirely. With that, Chris Perkins contacted myself and Rodney Thompson, who at the time was a freelancer. He since went on to work at Wizards of the Coast. Uh, and I had been laid off from Wizards of the Coast, so I was freelancing at this point, and told us, look, we want you to make a new version of Star Wars, and we want you to tackle every rule, not with how close is this to D&D, but what is the best way to make a Star Wars role-playing game that is still a class-level-based game, that it's recognizably the D20 system. Uh, but a lot of stuff had come out since then, right? right. You, you've got a, a whole slew of, of D20 books. We, we had right. D20 Call of Cthulhu. You had D20 Modern. So well, there were a lot five, more... 3.5 had come up by then, too, 3, right? 3.5 so had come out, right, yeah. out of 3.5, yeah. So we were able to do things like, hey, uh, what if we build most of these classes instead of saying, hey, you have these hard, fast abilities like you tended to for 3.0 classes and look more at D20 Modern and say, what if most things have talents uh, and then you have talent trees and you can, you can go through them and, and pick things you want. And then instead of inventing whole new classes, we can release new talent trees later on down the line. So we can say, all right, the, the scoundrel is clearly this kind of character class. Oh, hey, there are data slicers. We don't necessarily have to create a data slicer prestige class. We can release data slicer uh, talent Tree. trees. Yeah. And then you can take as much or as little of that as you want so that you can focus on one thing and, and, and really make that the focus throughout most of your career. Or you can spread yourself around and say, well, I'm taking a little from A and a little from B and a little from C. And it made a much more flexible system. Uh, we also decided that it was not necessary 
for every monster to be written up as this is your species, this is your class, and you have so many levels of it. So we could just say, okay, if we want stormtroopers to be dangerous when they shoot at you, but go down after one or two shots, what numbers should we give stormtroopers, even though no player character would be likely to ever have that exact set of numbers? And again, it was designed to create a more satisfying total Star Wars-like experience rather than it really feeling like D&D in space, which... Right. You know, the, the, a lot of people didn't like the first D20 Star Wars game because they felt it was D&D in space. And I frequently would, and they'd be like, you know, the D6 system uh, was was better. It was a, the old West End game system. I, I'd I, say, oh. I oh, you quote mean, myself saying that. Other I, than, their, was, other than their, uh, their, their force power system. Right, well, <laughs> that was a problem, right? It was, yeah. But it's also worth remembering that the D6 system was not created for Star Wars. It was created for the Ghostbusters role-playing game. Yep. So uh, the old WEG D6 system was Ghostbusters in space. And some things like the fact that the force power overlay was practically a mini game. And it meant that if you had a couple of powerful force users, they could have the fight be over before non-force users got to act. Yep. Uh, it might have been satisfying for force users and it might've felt like some of the expanded universe characters who are incredibly powerful Jedi can do these things. But from a gamist point of view, we were saying, and there is no level at which uh, Boba Fett is dangerous to a Jedi. Right. And we just, we felt like it was a better design to say, uh, it turns out the most powerful force users in the world are frequently high level characters, which is why they seem to be way more powerful than common folks, because there are fewer commoner force users. Right. But we can perfectly well say if you are you know, one of the, the best scoundrels in the, the galaxy, the best nobles in the galaxy, best bounty hunters, whatever it is, um, that you are as effective totally in an adventure as a force user, even if some of your expertise hits different areas. Right, right, definitely. What was the, did they give you a reason? Like, obviously, we just talked about the differences between the two. Was that the reason that they decided to go with, hey, we need to make a new new system? Did they ever tell you why specifically? Um, so they, they specifically released... Uh, Star Wars Saga Edition, because when we wrote the first two Star Wars role-playing D20 games, all three prequels weren't out yet. Okay. So there were things in those prequels that there were no game stats for, and you would okay. need a fairly extensive effort to put them together. And at that time, there was the, the, the official declaration from Lucasfilm is there will never be any more Star Wars movies, which is why we called it the Saga Edition, right? Here's the Star Wars Saga. We have all six movies. We've got uh, the, the whole Yuuzhan Vong invasion, which was a huge meta plot. That is now all over. So all of these pieces that were very important to people, uh, Knights of the Old Republic, that has all now supposedly finished. And so we can start from scratch and make a game to encompass all of those different types of play, all those different events, all those different activities, and try and have it be uniform instead of constantly bolting things on. Right. Um, the other practical thing, and this is not something they discussed with me at the time because I was a freelancer, but practically speaking, core rulebooks sell better than expansions. The core rulebook business is a good business to be in. Yeah. So if you are looking at a system and you're like, well, we're going to have to modify all the classes a little bit and we have to have to add a whole bunch of new starships. And there are a bunch of new characters. And once you're talking about doing a fairly major revision anyway, going to a new rulebook, especially when there are powers 
that didn't exist before that you're trying to include can be a way to get a a more satisfying total system and uh the hope was that i mean they were they had begun work on fourth edition at the time they did not tell us that uh but i i i know from talking to people after the fact that fourth edition work had begun and since they knew fourth edition was coming out and they knew that they did not think fourth edition would be a good fit for star wars there was no longer any need for the two systems to be so close that learning one really helped you play the other right because that was going to stop being the case anyway right so between needing to encapsulate the the last of the the movies at the time uh knowing that there was no longer going to be any point in it being that similar to D and a core rule book being a great way to relaunch a system get new interest and since we are going to want, you know, we're going to want to re-release a new Starship book because we now have Starships that never existed when we did the last one. Um, the whole line is now going to be hardback and full color. So, you know, we don't want the the softback 96-page Starships of the Galaxy black and white book. Right. We want it all to be consistent. Um, those sorts of choices, the sort of things that make you say, okay, it's worth doing a whole new line. Uh, we have X many years left on the license before we have to decide to renew or not. We think we can do a lot of support in that time. Okay. Well, how hard was it doing? Uh, there's a lot of source material in there. I mean, you guys pulled stuff from novels and stuff like that. How hard was it going? Going. Okay. Well, we have the stuff from the movies, but here's this. Here's the Thrawn stuff, or here's the you know stuff from other source material, and yeah. pulling that in for you know the 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 where Luke you know goes crazy or whatever you know that storyline. Pulling all of those little facets into their own books. <laughs> So some of it was done for us, right? I've, I had a copy of the Star Wars Encyclopedia. I had a copy of Del Rey's uh, Essential Star Wars Guide to Droids, Essential Star Wars Guide to Technology. Um, and those were being held forward as our Bibles, right? Here are the things that you want to... Uh, there is also, or at least there was at the time, a thing called the Jedi Holocron, which was a CD uh, that had all the information that had ever been released about any form of Star Wars all in one place. And uh, Chris Perkins was the one person at Wizards of the Coast that was allowed a copy of that CD. And so if you're saying, hey, I have to write up the history of Luke Skywalker, you could uh, turn to Chris and say, I've got to write up the history of Luke Skywalker. Can you send me the relevant portions of his entry in the Holocron? And then you get this big, long list of, you know, he was in this novel and this one important thing happened. He was in this novel. He was in this comic. This one important thing happened. And then that becomes, you can't build it off just that usually, but that becomes the reference work that you then say, okay, I know that these important events happened in these places. So I can go to my Star Wars library or I can see uh, online. The Wikipedia did not exist at the time. That would have made things (laughs) way easier. Right. Um, But it it was a way to be pointed in the right direction. And then you get to decide things like, hey, uh, B. Arthur had a character in Tatooine in the Star Wars Christmas special. Do we want to include that character (laughs) in our description of Tatooine? Um, And the answer, by the way, was no. No, we don't. We don't want to do that. But you you do have to make some of those decisions and try and have uh, sort of a a unified continuity. And it was interesting when you would find things, right? Um, I had actually read Splinter of the Mind's Eye. I had read... Uh, all of the uh, corporate sector authority novels with Han Solo and the the early novels with Lando Calrissian, sort of before the whole EU meta plot started going out. So I was familiar with the Caber Crystal, which was a big deal in the novel Splinter of the Mind's Eye. And then you're going through the entry for Luke Skywalker, 
in the Star Wars Encyclopedia, and it says that he took the Kaber crystal and used it to become the focusing crystal in his lightsaber. So at that moment in the in the early aughts, they're saying there's one Kaber crystal and Luke used it, and it is not in fact an all-powerful psychic crystal that only works on one planet, uh, but we're using the reference. And then of course now, if you watch what they've done with Kaber crystals going forward to the, the modern sets of movies, uh, it has become there is a substance, Kaber crystal, that is used amongst other things to make lightsabers, and there are right. like entire cities mining it. So it, it's interesting to sort of watch how canon evolves as you go. Yeah, definitely. Let's change gears real quick. Um, not real quick, but let's change gears. You worked, uh, and, I, and I'm only bringing this up because I'm a huge fan of the game back in the day. There was a video game called EverQuest, and you yep. worked on the role-playing system for that. How the hell did they think that, the, you know, let's put together the EverQuest role-playing system Um and how did that, how did you transpose information from the video game to that? Usually it's the other way around. Usually it's a role-playing system becomes a video game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So with the open gaming license, it was very clear that there was going to be a market for D&D-like games using the open gaming license. And so the people who were running White Wolf Studios at the time, uh, created a sub-company called Sword and Sorcery Studios, yep. which was what they were going to release all of their D20-compatible stuff through. So uh, the year after the 3.0 Player's Handbook had been released, the, the Wicks, uh, Stuart and Stephen Wick, pulled together a bunch of freelancers uh, and actually took us out to lunch at Gen Con the next year and said, hey, we have the license for the EverQuest video game to make it a role-playing game. And of course, the video game was at the time uh, holding the space in the the zeitgeek that World of Warcraft currently holds. Right. Because uh, World of Warcraft wasn't wasn't as a massively online multiplayer game yet, and and people were seeing that EverQuest was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and we would very much like for you all that have shown that you have experience with this to work on this system. So. Uh, it took a, it was a research intensive project. Um, there were some online sources that were helpful there at the time. Like there were people who had gone through and said, okay, uh, the snakeskin spell increases your resistance to physical damage by 3%. We, we have that number. And so you'd have these huge tables of spells uh, with effects. And then you'd be like, well, we're not going to turn everything into a percentile. So we're not going to do 3%. Um, but we can see that there are, say, six tiers of spells that have six levels of effect that give you six times more dangerous. So we'll have the first one at first level, the next one at second, we'll skip third, next one at fourth, next one at fifth, skip sixth, seventh, eighth, don't need one at ninth. Now we've got them. We know which one has to be more powerful. Then we attune that what is appropriate for a first level spell, a second level spell, right. building off the expectation that while this was not D&D, uh, we could use those benchmarks of effectiveness to make a roughly internally consistent game. Right. So uh, also uh, we were given access to free accounts for EverQuest so nice. that we could run around and look at things. And like uh, I was given a, a, one of the Wix had a max level character that I was loaned so I could run around the Befallen dungeon because I didn't have a character high enough level to survive Befallen. Right, and I'm supposed to right. write the adventure for Befallen. Um, so there was a lot of, of running around and looking at things and, and trying to, to figure out how to translate them. Um, it really was 
it's sort of a hybrid between translating from a book or a, a movie series where you just see the effect uh, and translating from another game system because sometimes you translate from one physical game system, tabletop game to another. Uh, and depending on how, how close they are, right? If you're going from revised core rulebook to Star Wars Saga, uh, a lot of those numbers are the same or if they're not the same, you sort of know what the ratio is. Yeah. Uh, when you're going from a novel series, like when we did the Black Company role-playing game, there was no set of numbers. We could only draw the effectiveness we could guess out of the narrative of the books. And then you you say, okay, well, that sounds like this person is roughly this dangerous. I would think that this level character would be appropriate. You figure out how to do it. This was a weird hybrid because there was a lot of narrative information, but there was also a lot of numbers, but those numbers did not translate on a one-to-one -one basis to the system we were using. So you had to sort of generate little scale tiers and say, okay, well, this is the spell that makes you the fastest of any spell in EverQuest, or uh, this is, you know, the, this is the, the barbarian class. It takes the most damage before it goes down, so we'll give them the D12 hit point. And then it may not be that the the uh, Shadow Knight is exactly a D10 versus a D12, but they are the next step down in durability, so that is what we will put there. Right, that makes sense. You went on to do stuff for D&D. You've done pretty much every edition of D&D, &D, right? Uh, let's see. I have not... I don't think I've written any... If you're talking about an official material, I have not released anything from Wizards of the Coast for 5th edition. Okay. I've done 5th edition OGL products okay. uh, and 5th edition Dungeon Masters Guild products. But you've, so done, but you've done official 4th edition, 3-5, stuff like yeah. that. Yes, how was that working for you? Like, was that like a big thing? Like, oh my God, I'm working for d and I'm, I'm writing D&D stuff. Uh, so it was this weird translation. When I was up for a job at Wizards of the Coast in 2000, they asked me in, in order, would I be most interested in working on core D&D &D or uh, the Forgotten Realms as a subset of D&D &D or licensed D&D uh, &D conversions, like there was talk about having the D&D &D movie get its own own book, or uh, licensed other things, like they had a license for Dune, they had a license for Star Trek at the time, uh, or Star Wars. And in order, uh, that was the order of my preference. So Star Wars was the last thing I was interested in doing. Right. Um, and I had to be very, very clear, uh, Thomas Reed, who was the, the creative director for Star Wars at the time, Called, they, I mean, they flew me out for the, the interview. And so he called my hotel room and he was like, so I note that you put Star Wars at the bottom of your list, but is that still something you'd be interested in? And I'm thinking, well, I'm not an idiot. He's not calling me just out of curiosity. He's calling me because there's a chance he'll hire me. So I told him, you know, I, I love Star Wars. I'm just not as much of an expert on Star Wars as I am a lot of other things. Uh, I am not a huge fan of the Star Wars uh, D6 system, so I don't have that tradition to draw from, but I would still love to do it. The weird thing about that was that I then learned the D20 system more through Star Wars than through D&D, &D, which is what most okay. people at the time were learning it through. Uh, and then when I was laid off in 2001, I was very suddenly one of the small number of people that other publishers knew, oh, Owen Stevens was good enough with D20 to write D20 stuff for Wizards of the Coast. And when I was laid off, I was not allowed to work for the RPG R&D division for six months because they, they could not lay you off and then hire you back freelance for fear that it looked like they were trying to get you to do the same work, but cheaper. Right. But the web team was a different department. Uh, and I knew several people on the web team. So they immediately contacted me and said, hey, 
we've got uh, weekly adventures, we've got weekly monsters, we've got all the stuff that we would love to have you write, and we're allowed to contract you, and we know we can work with you, and everyone else that has already done this is busy. So I, I was immediately working in 3.0 and then later 3.5 and, and uh, D20 Modern uh, through the web team a lot. Uh, and then I got uh, hired to do a weekly article for uh, D20 Weekly, which was done by Steve Jackson Games, trying to jump onto the D20 bandwagon. So I very quickly moved from D20 is Star Wars to D20 is any one of these sort of related systems, some of which right. are D&D &D and some of which aren't. Um, and by the time I was working on 3.5 or 4.0, I had simply gotten into the mindset of D20 is a series of philosophies rather than one game. And I just need to figure out what philosophy tweaks are between the core D20 that I'm used to and these. And that's, I didn't really have a trouble moving to fourth edition. Uh, there were some 3035 things I wanted to bring to fourth edition because I liked them better and that the four edition design team didn't want. So when I wrote those, they never got put in, but I could then see that and go, okay, well, that's the sort of thing that I want to include. Uh, and about roughly, you know, and I'm still working on Saga edition freelance at that point. And it was about then I started working on Pathfinder. So there was a point where I was actively writing Star Wars Saga Edition, 4th Edition D&D, and Pathfinder, uh, sometimes in the same week. And I would have to have, you know, two different laptops open. Well, one desktop and one laptop at the point, and a set of core rule books, because I'll be writing an, an adventure, and like tactics for this person. If he's knocked down and he can't stand up without taking an attack opportunity, oh, wait, is an attack opportunity in this game? Or is it an opportunity attack? Or hold on, <laughs> I've got to look that up. Right. And that actually served me really well because one of the things that older designers sometimes run into is that you remember one specific out of 12 ways this question has been handled in different game systems. Uh, and I just really got in the habit of if a rules question came up, step one, go to the core rule book for that game, read the rules in question, and then try and interpret them instead of running it off memory. Right. Um, and when I was the uh, design lead for Starfinder, even for Starfinder, which I helped write, uh, I would not necessarily remember, right? We discussed five ways that we could handle this question. I remember that discussion. I cannot guarantee I remember which one we wrote down. So as long as I know what section of the rule book it's in, I'll flip through, or if I have it online, I'll, I'll do a keyword search, find it, read it, and then I can say, okay, this is how I would interpret that, which uh, was very helpful when editors would come to me and they'd say, hey, uh, you say that this is a free action, but we can't find free actions in the Starfinder core rulebook. And I'd be like, oh, do we not have free actions? No, we don't. Okay, well, uh, for things that used to be free actions, they now say things like, as part of this other action. So we'll just have to change that wording. Yeah. But is that it, hard to juggle? You know, because you're, you're dealing with, <laughs> you're, you're dealing with, with like product ownership. So like you're dealing with, okay, here is a beholder this is D&D, &D. you can't put that in Pathfinder. You know, did you have a hard time dealing with, you know, you're talking to one person and, you know, maybe accidentally slipping something to the wrong person, not realizing you're talking to, you know, you're talking to Paizo and D Wizards of the Coast. And so I, I did not have problems with NDAs, right? Um, really early on, uh, while I was working on Star Wars, uh, Star Wars is probably the thing I've worked on in my entire career that had the highest level of secrecy and security about it. Because right. while I was freelancing for Star Wars, I was being given material about Star Wars movies that hadn't come out yet. So I had still shot some plot overviews uh, 
not extensive ones, but some, the sort of thing that, that, you know, ain't it cool news would just go crazy to get a hold of this stuff. Right. Um, and I was signing NDAs. And when I signed a contract to write on that stuff, I would have a three page contract from Wizards of the Coast. And then like 27 pages of restrictions on what I could and could not do from Lucasfilm regarding this information. Okay. You know, I cannot have this on a computer that is outside of my line of sight if it is not in my home. Uh, I cannot send it by email. So I got really used to early on firewalling information. And I it has served me well because that was difficult. But once I got used to that, I just tend to apply it to everything. So, you know, right now, uh, I may be aware of products that Green Renine, who I'm under contract for as a developer, they've got stuff that they're planning that hasn't been announced. Uh, I may or may not know about stuff Paizo does. I definitely know about stuff that my own companies are going to be doing. Right. Uh, and you just get in the habit of only talking about stuff that you know and have seen has come out. And you got to be really careful about that because sometimes, you know, if, if you are one of the people that worked on a book, sometimes as a courtesy, that publisher will send you a PDF or a hard copy of that book before it hits the public. So you need to make really sure not to talk about things until you have right. gotten permission, which happens sometimes, or you have seen it in stores, other people are talking about it, it's already out there. Uh, and especially you know, the announcement for second edition Pathfinder was a huge secret until it was made. The announcement about Starfinder was a huge secret until it was made. The announcement about Saga edition was a huge secret until it was made. Uh, for a long time, I didn't know when fourth edition was coming out, but it was very clear from things I was being told without being told the fourth edition was being worked on that some big change was coming. Right. Did you know about uh, the Pathfinder and Starfinder Infinite ahead of time? Yes, because uh, I was one of the people that they talked to about what such programs should look like. Okay, okay. Um, we had we had speaking of that, we almost had we had uh, James Sutter on, and uh -huh. it was the day that they announced it. Literally, it was like four hours later, and he said that, and he pointed it out, and he's like, and you could see the worry on his face because he thought it was too soon. He's like, can can we go back and edit? I'm like, yeah, we can edit that out. I'll have to delete the live stream after we're done and then I can right. edit it out of the pod. And then of course it was already announced. So we didn't it have was to already worry announced. about it, but I was like, I was worried. He was worried. We we're all worried. Uh, but and, yeah, you know, Sutter's, Sutter's one of the people that worked on the Starfinder Alexa program. And if ever there was something that was a big secret until it was announced, right. That is right. translating a tabletop role-playing game into a smart speaker game. that People can play worldwide just by talking to a smart speaker or getting the, uh, the app for their smartphone. Right. Did you have a hand in that at all? Did you work on that at all? I did not. I did not work on it. Okay. It started just after I left Paizo. Okay. I was one of the people that was aware it was going to be worked on. All right. Uh, and at first they were talking to me about writing for it freelance, but the team that was actually programming it into uh, the app wanted someone that could come into the building they were in. And I had already moved to Indiana at that point. Right. So they went to Sutter, uh, but they did build a lot of that based on adventures from first the Starfinder beginner box, which I did work on. And then they're adapting the first Starfinder AP, uh, Dead Sons, which I worked on various parts of that and wrote the last adventure in that series. Well, you worked on, see, we're talking about Starfinder. You worked on Starfinder and Pathfinder. How was that coming over? You've had all this experience with D&D &D and Star Wars. Was that helpful in creating a, you know, working on Pathfinder, and then of course, you know, working on this other out in space. 
um, knowing that in the past, you know, you had the we didn't we don't didn't want it to be D and D in space, but now we want it to be Pathfinder in space. <laughs> well, we didn't though. Um, okay. So if you say that Starfinder is supposed to be Pathfinder in space, then you should be able to directly translate over everything, right? Okay. So you should have a wizard, you should have a cleric, you should have an oracle, and what we wanted was to take the cosmology of Pathfinder. Uh, with the idea of the gap, there is a hard break in continuity. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to explain how did you get from the way things worked in Pathfinder to how do they work now in Starfinder. And then build the best game we can build using that cosmology. Specifically, one of the design goals that we were given from above was with monsters being easily adapted. Because there were, we already knew there were going to be six bestiaries for Pathfinder first edition. And it seems hugely unlikely that there would be a, ever 180, uh, 240 pages of monsters right. for Starfinder. Uh, but with those structures, make the best game we can with those rules. So uh, I know that it is very easy to say, hey, the soldier is is a, a fighter for Starfinder and the operative uh, is a rogue for Starfinder. And for those two, that's pretty close to true, but that's because those as archetypes, as iconic right. archetypes of characters are just kind of universal. Uh, the whole reason we had the Solarian in the first book was that uh, Robin Creary, who at the time uh, was the development lead and then later was the creative director after Sutter left, uh, when we were sitting around having a meeting of what our classes were going to be, he said, what is the thing we are going to put in Starfinder that only exists because it is Starfinder, that is different from anything that came before, so that people can say, hey, you've got whole, you know, thousands or hundreds of years in the future, whatever, uh, whole new species, whole new cultures, whole new energies flowing around. There are brand new gods that have come to exist. What what can we do that is different from just the stuff we've done in Pathfinder? And so the Solarian is a, a character that is a mystic warrior that manipulates energy from the suns, specifically uh, light energy and gravity energy is the two big parts of that. Uh, who also happens to be able to look a lot like, say, someone having an energy sword who can jump great distances in cloud mines, just in case there's some other uh, science fantasy setting that you want to be able to emulate. <laughs> um, that was a big part of that. So the other thing is that we, we created Starfinder basically from concept to execution in a year right? They Crazy. started Pathfinder 2nd Edition a year before we started Starfinder. And they did not finish Pathfinder 2nd Edition until a year afterwards, and their team was bigger. So there were some things that we did because we did not have time to do anything else. Right. Uh, you know, we, we kept uh, a lot of the way that skills work. Um, we, we tweaked it some, but we started with, okay, are we going to have an acrobatic skill? Yeah, we're going to have an acrobatic skill. Are we going to have a flying skill? No, we don't want a separate skill, but we'll take that and make it a task for acrobatics. Hey, we have to have a pilot skill because we're going to have starship combat. Okay, we'll add that. Um, do we need use magic device? You know, we've decided to simplify everything. We were trying to make Starfinder no more than 75% as complicated as Pathfinder while adding interstellar travel and starship combat and a whole bunch of new elements. So there were a lot of things that we dialed back just to make it simpler. That's why uh, spellcasters only have six levels of spells and everyone is a, a uh, spontaneous spellcaster. So we don't have to explain two or by the time you get to the, the Arcanist, three different ways that people can cast spells. Um, there's no verbal and somatic components. All of that stuff was specifically designed so that the buy-in was not as big for Starfinder as it was for Pathfinder. 
and so that if you already knew how to play Pathfinder or 3.5 or Saga Edition or any of the D20 system games, uh, a lot of that knowledge would translate over. If you would have had more time in a bigger group, because you're talking second, Pathfinder Second Edition had more people, more time. Yep. If you had more people and more time, is there anything you would have done differently? Yes. Anything you can talk about that you would have done, done differently? <laughs> So we would have play tested differently. I can tell you that. And that would have led to some changes. Um, We did not have time for a big open play test like Pathfinder second edition did, or all the hardbacks for Pathfinder have always done, or like we did for hardbacks to expand Starfinder later, right? The character operations manual and uh, tech evolution. Those hardbacks have had big open play tests. of some of the big concepts. Uh, We managed a lot of, uh, small internal play tests. We had some trusted groups uh, that we worked found through volunteers and organized play and uh, friends of friends that we sent things out to. And uh, Joe Pacini and Amanda Hammond took the extraordinary step of on their own time, getting people uh, from a video game slash game university who had never played a tabletop game to come play uh Starfinder and then later the Starfinder beginner box so that we could say, okay, we're handing this to you. We're shutting up. Does this make sense? Have we, you know, like in, in the first core rule book for Starfinder, we forgot to tell you how you heal a drone's mechanic. It's just not in there right. uh, because we would run a play test and then we'd say stop. And then we would make changes and we'd run a new play test. And we, we never worried about taking that specific character build one out of like 14 possible options from encounter to encounter to encounter. So we've literally, we had an ability in there to allow you to fix it faster, but we never told you what the base rule was. Okay. That's the sort of thing we would have caught. Uh, I suspect that we might've had a different set of rules for computers, a different sets of rules for starships, uh, different sets of rules for cybernetics. Those are all places where we knew we were really pressed for time to make right. something that was cool and functional and worked smoothly. And did not get as much playtest feedback as I would have, but I can't say for certain we would have done exactly this instead of exactly that. This is speculation, but do you think, and this is going to just be your opinion, do you think they're going to do a Starfinder second edition? So Paizo has announced that they might someday, but it is not on the table right now. Uh, and I certainly believe them, right? They've got plenty on their plate without right, that. Right. Uh, it would not surprise me if someday there was a Starfinder second edition. I actually think it is more likely if they do another D20 game set with that cosmology that they will create a sort of a, a core set of rules with modules for how to use it for different genres. Okay. So, and this is pure speculation. This is not something that anyone's ever talked to me yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Speculation. I, I would, speculation I would, away. <laughs> I would guess that instead of saying, okay, we're going to do exactly Starfinder again, they'd say, hey, we have Pathfinder second edition. Uh, and then we will have a rule set that we're going to call Pathfinder Expanded or Pathfinder Basic or whatever. And we'll have the base sets of rules. And then we'll say, here's what you want to do if you do want to do science fantasy. And here's what you want to do if you want to do Old West. And here's what you want to do if you want to do Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, that is just a guess. The other direction that could take it, and it's something we talked about for Starfinder, was rather than a new edition of Starfinder, have a Starfinder source book for Pathfinder 2nd Edition that says, okay, Everything in Pathfinder 2nd Edition applies, but here are your new races, your new classes, your new feats. Here are the specific rules for hacking and for starship combat. Uh, I mean, that's something we talked about as a possibility. And the main reason we didn't do it is that we knew that Pathfinder 1st Edition was coming to a close. And Starfinder as a core rulebook had to be 
complete in and of itself. Uh, it had to give you everything that you absolutely had to have to play a game because we were not even 100% sure when we did it that the, the first bestiary would come out. We were pretty sure it would. We knew that we were going to have one adventure path arc because once we'd committed to it, um, Eric Mone has always said, hey, if I'm putting out a six-part adventure, uh, I have to be promised that that after we put out the first one, we'll put out all six, even if sales are terrible because he doesn't want to go halfway through an adventure and then tell people, oops, sorry, you'll never know how this ends. Right. But there was no guarantee that it was going to be popular enough that it would become a line. Uh, we originally specifically were told there will not be a Starfinder beginner box. There isn't room for that kind of work on the schedule. Uh, there will not be standalone Starfinder modules. Uh, they originally were only releasing one module every other month, and those were all adventure paths. Uh, now they're doing adventure path one month and a standalone the other month. Uh, the question of hardbacks, like the character operations manual or, or even packed worlds, none of those were a lock. Um, so it turned out to be popular enough to support its own line. And there's some people at Paizo who primarily work on Starfinder, even though a lot of people like the editors and, and layout and marketing, they all have to be able to hop back and forth between the two systems right. uh, interchangeably. So it's, it's asking a lot of them. It's, it's tougher in many ways than being a designer because in general, a designer is being asked to design for this system or that system. The people who are doing both do it because they like it and they enjoy it, not because it is a mandatory part of their job. Okay. You've moved on from Paizo, and you yep. currently work uh, with Green Ronin, or Ronin, depending on how you want to pronounce it. How, how uh, did you for, get, how did you transfer? Oh, go ahead. Uh, it is Green Ronin. You can argue okay. about how Ronin is argued in the English language, but as a proper noun, the company name is Green Ronin. Good to know. I like how it rhymes. Green Ronin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 100%. How did you, how did you transfer going? Because you were already working there a little, you know, when you were working at Paizo, right? Or working with them? Uh, yeah, uh, so <laughs> turn the way back machine on my story way back to 2000 when I was working at Wizards of the Coast. Right. Uh, and when I was working at Wizards of the Coast, I worked with people like Chris Pramus, uh, who is the president of Green Renin, uh, and Nicole Lindrus, who's one of the owners. And when the D20 burst happened uh, and I was freelancing, I was one of the people they turned to for D20 products published by Green Renin. So I wrote... Uh, Bastards and Bloodlines for them, and I worked on the uh, Black Company role-playing game for them, and uh, that relationship worked well. Uh, so later, when they were working on the Game of Thrones role-playing game, I worked on that some. Uh, when they were working on the Dragon Age uh, licensed game, I worked on that some. I was going to ask and, you about both of those. <laughs> and, and we can get to them. Yeah. Um, but for where my current position is, uh, basically... They ended up doing a huge Kickstarter for a Pathfinder compatible version of the Freeport City. So Freeport City Adventure, which is this huge 580, 600 page book. Uh, and they needed a developer for that. And before I got hired at Paizo, they asked me, can you be on contract to be our developer for this huge book? Because we know you know Freeport, you've worked with us before, we know you know Pathfinder, you've done a ton of stuff through uh, originally Super Genius and then later Rogue Genius Games. Mm -hmm. So I had that gig. And then when Paizo hired me, I told them, hey, I have this contract gig working on this book for Green Ronin. I can't leave them in the lurch. Is it okay if I am working for you at Paizo full-time and working for Green Ronin part-time under contract work and running my own company, Rogue Genius Games, in what we will oftenly call my spare time? Uh, and to their credit, everyone was super cool with it. Um, they all said, you know, you've, you've, you've been a freelancer, you know exactly what we were discussing, what you can and can't say, that you can't leak information, you know, you can't tell Green Ronin that, that Paizo is doing a big pirate adventure, whatever. Right. Um, 
and I did that for many years while I was working at Paizo. And then eventually, uh, shortly before Pathfinder 2nd Edition was announced, Green Ronin decided that they had done everything they wanted to do with Pathfinder. So they wrapped that up and I left the company and I moved to Indiana when I left Paizo and I had a job lined up for a, a plan, a career plan lined up and that didn't work out and they needed a new person to be the Fantasy Age developer and Fantasy Age evolved from Dragon Age and they knew I had done some Dragon Age work. So they asked me, you know, you've been a developer for us before. We know, you know, the game system. Uh, we plan for this to, the Fantasy Age had been tied to Freeport and we're going to do something slightly different, but it's still going to need to be able to have that flavor. So we know, you know, the Freeport flavor. We know, you know, the core rule system. Do you want to be the developer? And uh, I, I love working for Green Running. Um, they're they are not only one of my favorite game companies, they are comprised of many of my favorite people. Uh, so I was delighted to hop on uh, and then the pandemic happened. So I have not produced right. things nearly as quickly as we had hoped, uh, but there is a new core rule book for Fantasy Age, which will be releasing next year, which uh, sort of like the revised core rule book or 3.5 uh, is designed to take a bunch of the things that we learned from having released Fantasy Age, uh, emergent behavior that was not necessarily obvious initially, and make a quality of life improvement. Unlike those games, the Fantasy Age Core Rule Book is going to be 100% compatible with everything that is otherwise out for Fantasy Age. So you can take any existing Fantasy Age product and you can play it with the base rule book, which currently exists, or with the bigger Core Rule Book, and it'll work fine either way. So and that's a spin. So and I didn't I didn't know that this was connected to Dragon Age at all. How yeah. how much like is it directly related? Like are the the this the worlds and stuff similar or the the worlds aren't similar except that fantasy age is inspired by sort of the same tabletop role-playing uh traditions that obviously led to dragon age the video game that was then okay. backwards compatible but they are both part of the adventure game engine age okay uh so the adventure game engine was originally created for dragon age because they did not want it to be a d20 game they wanted to create something that worked specifically for it and had its tone and right. then they wanted to make a generic version of that that was not Dragon Age specific. But if you're looking at what characters feel like, they feel much more like the lower magic uh, fantasy or Dragon Age feel, okay. where if you're a wizard and you've got three spells and one blast, uh, that's probably what you've got and you're not going to be casting wish spells. I, I know that there are people that are either watching or listening that are big fans of the Dragon Age setting. Yeah, and want to be like, I want more. Yeah, and it, so they could bring their they could bring their Dragon Age stuff and just be like, whoop, whoops, and insert it right into this. There, there are there are like, and we also have Modern Age, and for that matter, there's the Expanse, licensed from the books that the the Amazon series is on. Awesome. Like with D twenty, all of those are slightly different, so they are not one hundred percent compatible with each other, but they're close enough that you can work it out. If awesome. if you have any familiarity with how game design works, if you're the sort of person who and I'm dating myself, obviously, but you know, if, <laughs> if you used to use first edition D&D monsters in a second edition D&D game, uh, that's the level of, of translation we're talking about. Um, so there are a lot of people who take, you know, adventures or monsters or spells that we write for Fantasy Age and then backport them to Dragon Age. Okay, excellent, excellent, excellent. What other stuff did you work on? Did you work, you worked on Game of Thrones, right? For them. Um, yeah. You, yeah, as you mentioned, how hard was that taking stuff over? And how how hard was your? Uh, obviously, you did the Star Wars stuff, so it must not have been too difficult to not worry about, you know, disclaimers and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, my work on it was before it was the Song of Ice and Fire role playing game, mm -hmm. right? So it's not the Game of Thrones role playing game, right? 
Um, and that was bef- all my work on it was before the HBO series came out. Oh, okay. Uh, so everything I did was when it was a big literary property, but had not exploded onto the scene the way it did when the when the series came right. out. Um, it was research intensive, uh, and it was interesting because a lot of what I was specifically doing was uh, filling in background cracks to make the sitting playable while knowing up front that these are things that may not ever be used by Martin or any other right. adaptation. Um, you know, there, there are places on the map where if the story doesn't go there, you don't need to tell anyone what it's there, but for a game the the GM wants to have some idea what might be there if that's where the players walk to. So uh, it was, it was research intensive rules light. Um, and I don't think anything I've done in it has ever been picked up, uh, which it's interesting when you're working on something like uh, Star Wars, because there are things I have written for Star Wars for the tabletop game first that have then been adapted. Uh, like there's the the ILHKK Citadel Cruiser, which I just wrote for, for Starships of the Galaxy. And then later the uh, Star Wars card game picked up the ILHKK Cruiser. And it's been mentioned, you know, in passing uh, in novels and things like that. Uh, I created the Killian Rangers and they got mentioned in one of the novels just literally as someone, Achillean Lord as a quote about how the force works. But it's really interesting because you create these things and they become part of the big sandbox and other people come and play in the sandbox. And you don't even really know what happens unless you happen to notice it or someone tells you about it. Um, as far as Song of Ice and Fire goes, I don't think anything I, I created for that, which was all, you know, what's over this hill, what minor clan might be in the background, right. what, what, what house is around that you could be from. Uh, I don't think any of that has made it into the the broader uh, Song of Ice and Fire gestalt, which is fine. Um, but yeah, I did work on that. Uh, I worked on the uh, Black Company role-playing game, and I'm a huge fan of uh, Glenn Cook's Black Company novels. So that was, and, and they knew I was a huge fan of, of the Black Company novels. When I was interviewed for a job at Wizards of the Coast, one of the questions I was asked was, if you could adapt any one property to a D20 game, to a D&D game, what would it be? And I said, Black Company. And Chris Premus was in the room when that happened. Nice. Later, when he got the license uh, and I was freelancing and I had already done stuff for them, he was like, hey, I know you said you'd like to do this. Uh, not everyone knows the property. Would you like to work on that? The, the lead developer is going to be Rob Schwab, who's one of the best game designers in existence. Uh, and I was, uh, he had developed some of my, my stuff for just D20 releases through Green Running. So I was very, very happy to work on that with them. Awesome. Um, Did you have any hand in uh, Mutants and Masterminds at all? Or were you no. kind of hands off from that? Nope. Okay. Uh, it, it, mostly it's that they never needed any help, right? I've right. played that game a lot. Um, the, the, most, uh, the most impact I've had on it is that at one point I was working with Crystal Frazier who indicated that she had interest in writing for Mutants and Masterminds but did not know who to talk to. I worked at Green Ronin at the time, so I put them in touch. Okay. She's now the developer for Mutants and Masterminds. Nice. So uh, I have not done any of the work there, but I, Crystal is another one of the best game designers out there. She's Crystal is one of the most talented people in tabletop, right? She does art, she does layout, uh, she can write, she can do game design, she can do adventures. Um, she can literally do every single part of a role-playing game if she has time. So the question is, what 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 do you want to put her talents towards? Uh, and as the developer uh, for the Mutants and, Ma- and Masterminds line, I think she's done a lot of really great work. Uh, she did the basic Heroes Handbook with Steve Kenson. Um, 
there are just some unbelievably talented people working at Green Ranine. And one of the reasons yeah. I like working at Green Ranine is that it, it allows me to rub elbows with them and learn from them. Well, yeah. And uh, almost everything they put out, I've really enjoyed myself as well, including right now you are working on uh, the Starfinder Infinite stuff. You know, we mentioned Pathfinder Infinite and Starfinder Infinite a little while ago, which is basically the open gaming license for Starfinder and Pathfinder. Am I not, am I not wrong? So you're kind of wrong. Um, okay. It's basically the Dungeon Masters Guild for Pathfinder and Starfinder. Okay. Um, so there is the open gaming license, which dates back to 2000 and the D20 system was released under it. Both Pathfinder and Starfinder, for that matter, Pathfinder 2nd Edition, are released under the open gaming license because they are evolved from that original D20 system game set. Okay. But the OGL prevents you from mentioning anyone's intellectual property, including trademarks, product names, uh, anything that they declared is off limits, which in the case of everything Paizo does includes pretty much all proper nouns. So you can't mention their adventures. You can't mention their game books. I can release something that's Pathfinder compatible, but I cannot say it's Pathfinder compatible just under the OGL. There are then two more licenses, three actually. There's the Pathfinder compatibility license, the Pathfinder second edition compatibility license and the Starfinder compatibility license. And these are licenses that Paizo put out so that if I follow certain rules, I can mention game books, but I still can't mention, uh, and only some game books, only the ones they give me permission to, which is for the most part, they're hardbacks. Right. So uh, if I want to build something that works off of a class uh, from to go to a first edition uh, Pathfinder. If I want to say here are new options for this class from the advanced class guide, I can say here are new options for this class. See the advanced class guide. I have permission to do that. Okay. But I still cannot mention Galarian or their specific gods or their plot lines. And that brings us to the infinite programs. Uh, Pathfinder Infinite and Starfinder Infinite are programs that are handled by One Bookshelf, which are the people that do drive through, uh, who are also the people that do the Dungeon Masters Guild, which is the group that allows you to write. D&D 5th edition content using elements from their game worlds that you can't use with just the OGL. So okay. like Keith Baker has been releasing Eberron stuff. He's the creator right. of Eberron. You can't mention Eberron or the Eberron specific stuff with just the OGL, but you can in the Dungeon Masters Guild. So right. he's been doing that. Um, the Pathfinder Infinite and Starfinder Infinite are programs like that, where if I sell through those programs, I have to use the OGL. I'm using infinite rules instead of the Pathfinder compatibility rules. And then as long as I follow all those rules, I can talk about Galarian and the Gap and Iomidae and specific adventures. And, and even I could rewrite, uh, I could offer new rules to, to, if there was a first edition Pathfinder adventure, and I could say, here are everything you need to run that for second edition. Right. Um, and you can't just copy and paste. Everything has to be offering new material for the the canon for the background right but you can then build off all that stuff so the big thing i'm working on for that at the moment uh, is a project that i'm calling shadow finder core which is a play mode for starfinder so it's designed to allow you to take the starfinder role-playing game and use it for adventures set in a modern day setting that can either be modern day earth or galarian at a modern day level of technology and i can talk about uh how this came about. So that specifically ties into uh, in the Reign of Winter, spoilers for the Reign of Winter Adventure Path from like six years ago. <laughs> in the Reign of Winter Adventure Path, uh, at the end, the characters literally travel from Galarian to World War I Earth to kill Rasputin. Uh, 
Shadowfinder assumes that when they did that, they created a link between Golarian and Earth, and stuff started traveling both ways. So technology started ending up in Golarian, and magic started ending up on Earth, and a big thing called the Shuttle Blast, because it was being checked out by, by Russians at the time, formed that is a dimensional scar linking the two. And because of that, in the Starfinder timeline, when Galarian is missing and no one knows what happened to it, Galarian and Earth are both cut off from the rest of the galaxy. They're connected by the Shadow Blast, and there are things in the Shadow Blast, this, this dimensional scar, that are trying to destroy the worlds, both of them preferably, so they can be released. And you will be playing modern tech era characters who are trying to find the things in those shadows. So oh. Shadow Finder. Wow. Nice. And that's, a, that's a great concept. It, there's a book series that it reminds me of, but that's a really great concept. I, I hope there are a bunch of book series it reminds you of. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got a big uh, appendix that I actually posted on my website, uh, the first draft of it, that talks about a lot of the things that inspired me to do this. Um, I'm a big fan of the modern urban fantasy genre, and I don't think it calls for a totally separate game system, but right. you do need a, a different way to take the existing rules. So I want it to be 100% Starfinder compatible so that anybody can take any monster from Starfinder, any character class, any option, even an adventure, and just reskin it without having to change the rules and use it for Shadowfinder. Nice. Awesome. You also have um, your company, Rogue Genius yeah. Games, and that Rogue is that Genius specifically Games. drive through RPG? Uh, no, we also sell on the opengamingstore.com. Okay. Uh, we used to also sell on paizo.com. Uh, we've never sold through our own website because I don't want to have to deal with like that value-added tax and, and privacy concerns. And I, I leave that to the professionals. Right. So uh, it's available on DriveThruRPG. It's available at theopengamestore.com. Uh, and in addition to releasing stuff I write or develop, uh, we're also partnered with Everybody Games, uh, which is Alex Agunas. So we publish his material, um, even though he's writing and developing that stuff on his own, we're just his publisher. Uh, we have also published stuff from Christine Styles Presents. Uh, there's a freelance group called The Four Horsemen that we were publishing for a while. But it is primarily the place where uh, if I want to produce a product and I don't want some other third-party publisher to be the people to publish it, that's what I publish it through. Okay. Awesome, awesome. I don't remember what my next question was going to be. <laughs> you role play. Uh, I do a lot. How often do you do you role? Play? You were telling me early on that you obviously you've been role playing, but beforehand you were talking about it. My big question: I ask this to everybody who role plays that I have on. Do you prefer yep. to be a player or a game master? I do not prefer. I enjoy both. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I I like to play more often than I. And the game master because game master prep between games takes longer. Yeah. Uh, but on the current schedule, uh, I am playing in a game that my wife runs every Tuesday, which is a first edition Pathfinder game uh, where she has eight players, which would drive me crazy, but she wrangles them just fine. But she's, she's a much bigger geek than I am. Uh, I've got a game on Friday that my friend Carl that I've been gaming with for decades uh, <laughs> He runs a Starfinder game, which is also being used as a playtest test bed for a set of Starfinder mythic rules that he's working on that we plan to publish. Uh, and then on Saturday, there's a game where one week I run a game that's a Starfinder game set in the Old West, and uh, a friend of mine runs the other Saturdays. So for every two weeks, I am running once and playing five times. Nice. That's, that's uh, a good feeling. I have I have had it be as low as you know roughing half the time, but that would not then be six games every two weeks. That would be 
two games every two weeks with me running one of them. And that doesn't include playtesting, right? So we do use some of that for playtesting. Okay. Uh, it varies. The very fact that, for example, we had this problem with uh, not thinking to tell people how you repair your drone because we did not have a playtest that was an ongoing campaign uh, has caused me to frequently try to introduce stuff as part of an ongoing campaign. Now, okay. uh, I ran a long playtest for the Fantasy Age Core rulebook, which will be out next year, and that was separate. That was on Sundays. And that was technically a campaign, but I had very much set things up uh, up front as being uh, you are members of an adventuring guild and each session they will send you on an adventure and it will last exactly one session. And if we're not done at the end, we're going to say we're done and we'll do something else at a new level at the next game. So it was sort of compressed, but it was ongoing. But nice. uh, like I said, the mythic Starfinder rules are currently being playtested in that ongoing game. Uh, there's a, a class uh, who can post big banners that control an area that's being playtested in the uh, first edition Pathfinder game. I'm not running on Saturday. Uh, and then there's a ton of rules uh, that I've been playtesting in my Really Wild West game, my old West Starfinder game, many of which uh, formed the core of what is going to be Shadowfinder when that's released. Great, great. And people can find you on Twitter at Owen underscore Stevens. You are very, uh, very prolifically active on the Twitter. Uh, I see you all the time on there. In fact, I've I've been following you for a few years, actually. So I <laughs> see you quite a bit on there. Uh, OwenKCStevens.com. Uh, you can find all of the links. You can find the Rogue Genius Games there. You can find Green Ronin. See, I said it right. And, you know, all of your stuff on your website. Uh, I'd like to thank you for coming by and hanging out with us today. It's been uh, awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me. For those listening to the podcast and here, we're going to be joined on November 29th by Jarrett Lamaster. He's an actor, a singer, a podcast, and a narrator for audiobooks. So that'll be November 29th. He, uh, if you were with us for our Justin Leslie episode that we interviewed Justin Leslie, he does the narration for his uh, post-apocalyptic book series. December 13th, iconic comic book writer, Chuck Dixon, you know him from the 1970s, 80s, 90s, all the way through, probably one of the most prolific uh, comic book writers in history. He will be joining us December 13th. Uh, and December 27th, Origins Hall of Famer and award-winning creator, Robert Ancharette. He doesn't get out a lot and do a lot of stuff, but I got him on the podcast. He is one of the main creators for Shadowrun, uh, RuneQuest, worked on Battletech. He is a very prolific miniature sculptor, for Ralpatha, Reaper Minis, and more. So he's going to be joining us December 27th. Hope you can join us all for that. And thank you very much. We will see you next time on Epic Rumps. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. Epic Realms.